It is not only true, it is comforting to say that incredulity is often no more than superstition turned inside out, but there can be a faith of disbelief, as inaccurate as its success, and in some ways more trying, for the right answers to it have not yet been thought up. It was only because Trenchard said at lunch that the Mass was a dramatised wish fulfilment, that what came after ever happened. At least I wish we did not think so. It was trying to get out anyhow, but if he had not irritated us and made us want to show off, we would not have made ourselves serviceable to it. And it was we who came off lightly. To him it has been something that he has not been able to shake off. When it happened he behaved so well about it, but that didn't save him. Now he cannot think what he used to think, and he does not know what else there is that he might think. I am seeing him now more vividly than I like. He was our next-door neighbour in a remote village in Kent. A nest of wasps had divided their attention between us, and we had met after sunset to return their calls with cyanide and squibs. He was a sanguine man, positive, hearty, actually emotional. He had known and done a great many things, but when he came to give his account of them, all he had to say was a set of pseudo-rationalizations, calling the bluff in inaccurate language of God. The arts, the imagination, the emotions. That is not even chic science for laymen today. He might have thought that way as much as he liked, but there was no reason, we said, to try and prove it to us, all one hot, sweet, blue-drawn summer in a Kentish orchard, to sweat for our conversion, to shame us into agreement. Until the evening I told him to stop boring us with his wish-fulfillments, for they weren't ours, and saw his healthy skin start to sweat, and a stare come into his eyes. That ought to have warned me, as it did my sister, of whom I am sometimes afraid. It did warn us, but it wound us up also. We went home through the orchard in the starlight, and sat downstairs in the midsummer night between lit candles, inviting in all that composed it, night-hunting cries and scents of things that grow and ripen, cooled in the star-flow, a world visible but not in terms of colour, with every door and every window open, the old house was no more than a frame, a set of screens to display night, midsummer, perfume, the threaded stillness, the stars strung together, their spears glancing, penetrating an earth breathing silently, a female power asleep. All he hears is nature snoring, said my sister. Let's give him a nightmare. It was a good idea. How? I said. We'll find out tomorrow. I can feel one about. I got up to close the doors before we mounted with our candles. Through walls and glass, through open doors or shut, a tide poured in. Not of air or any light or dark or scent or sound or heat or coolness. Tide. Without distinction from north or south, or without or within, without flow or ebb, a becoming, without stir or departure or stay, without radiance or pace, star-tide. Has not science had wind of rays poured in from interstellar space? There is no kind of ill-doing more fascinating than one which has a moral object, a result in view which will justify the means without taking the fun out of them. All that is implied when one says that one will give someone something to cry about. It was that line which we took at breakfast. We'll try this simple faith, we said, 
We'll scare him stiff and see how he stands the strain. We'll haunt him and ask each other if either of us knew of a practising vampire in the neighbourhood or a were-cow. It was several days before we hit on a suitable technique, examining and rejecting every known variety of apparition, realising that apparatus must be reduced to a minimum, and that when nothing will bear scrutiny, there must be very little given to scrutinise. In fact, what we meant to do was to suggest him into an experience, the worse, the better, wholly incompatible with the incredulities of his faith. That it would be easy to do, we guessed. That it would be dangerous to him, that appeared at the moment as part of the fun, not because we did not like him, because we wanted to have power over him. The power women sometimes want to have over men, the pure, not erotic power whose point is that it shall have nothing to do with sex. We could have made him make love to either or both of us, any day of the week. This is what we planned. Understanding that, like a work of art, once it had started, its development could be left to look after itself. Suppose, said my sister, that we have heard a ridiculous superstition in the village that there is something wrong with the house. We will tell him that. And when he has gone through his reaction exercises, it may take a day or so, and will depend on our hints. And if we make the right ones, the battle's won, he will ask us what the story is. What is it to be? I said, who can rarely attain to my sister's breadth of mind. That does not matter, because before we begin, we'll do something. Anything. A last year's leaf for a start, so long as it can go into a series on his blotter or his pillow. We're always in and out. We'll put them there and get us round for the evening and start when we see one. And that's where our village story begins. All that he has to get out of us is that there is a story and that wet leaves or whatever it is we choose are found about. Signatures, you know. If he doesn't rise the first night, he'll find that leaf when he goes to bed. It depends on how well we do it. I recognised a master's direction but it all seemed to depend on our choice of stimulants. Last year's leaves, delicate damp articulations, coloured pebbles, dead flies, scraps of torn paper with half a word decipherable. A mixture of these, or a selection. Keep it tangible, my sister said. That's the way. Our only difficulty is the planting of them. Which, I asked, are suitable to what? It seemed to be necessary in laying our train to determine the kind of unpleasantness for which they were ominous. But I could not get my sister to attend. It's not that way round, she said at length. Dead bees, feathers, drops of candle grease, old kid gloves, with and without buttons. That will do. I felt a trifle queer. Well, I said, they're the sort of things a man never has in his house, so that's sound so far, but women do. Not the sort of things we wear, but... He'd not know that. And how do we get hold of them? There's a shoebox in the loft full of them, by the door into his place, when these houses were one. Our cottages were very old, side by side, with a common wall, our orchards divided by a hedge. We had rented ours from a friend who had recently bought it, as it stood, from a local family which had died out, and of which very little seemed known. My sister said, shiny black kid and brown, with little white glass buttons and cross-stitching braid. All one size, and I suppose for one pair of hands. Some have all the buttons, and some have none, and some have some. 
I listened to this rune until I was not sure how many times my sister had said it. With and without buttons, I repeated, and could not remember how often I had said that. After that, we said nothing more about it, and it was three days later that he asked us to supper. And we walked round through the gap in the hedge in the pure daylight, and sat in his little veranda, whose wooden pillars spread as they met the roof in fans of plaited green laughs. Prim fantasy with its French windows behind it, knocked out of walls of flint rubble three feet thick. Roses trailed up behind it, a tidy little home, with something behind it of monstrous old age one did as well to forget. By the way, he said, as I have said before, his name was Trenchard, and he had come back to his own part of England to rest after a long time spent in looking after something in East Africa. By the way, have either of you two lost a glove? So she's got busy already and didn't even tell me the spoil sport, I thought. No, we said, but one always does. What sort of a glove? A funny little thing of brown kid with no buttons. I didn't think it could be yours. I found it on top of the loft stairs outside the door. Here it is. He went inside and came out onto the veranda where we were having supper a moment later, puzzled. Here it is, he said. I put it in the bureau, and the odd thing is that when I went to look for it, I found another. Not its pair, either. This one's black. Two little ladylike shiny kid gloves, the kind worn by one's aunts when one was a child. I had not yet seen our collection. The black had three of its buttons missing. We told him that they were not the kind that women wore now. My landlady bought the place unfurnished, he said. Must have come out of the things the old owners left behind when they died. My sister gave a slight start, a slight frown, and bit her lip. I shook my head at her. What's up? he asked, simply. Nothing, we said. I'm not going to be laughed at by you, said my sister. I'm not laughing, he said, his goodwill beaming at us, prepared even to be tolerant. Oh, but you'd have the right to. After that, he wanted to know at once. It's playing into your hands, she said. But don't you know that your half of the house is the village haunt, and that it's all about gloves, with and without buttons? It was ridiculously easy. He was amiable rather than irritated at her story, while I was still hurt that she had not first rehearsed it with me. She began to tell him a story about old Miss Blacken, who had lived here with her brother, a musty old maid in horrible clothes, but nice about her hands and how there was something, no, not a ghost, but something which happened that was always preceded by gloves being found about. This we told him, and he behaved very prettily about it, sparing us a lecture. But it's not quite fair, he said. I mustn't be selfish. She must leave some at your place. Remember, in her day it was all one house. Then we talked about other things, but when we had gone home I found my sister a little pensive. I began on my grievance. Why didn't you tell me you'd begun? Why didn't you coach me? Then she said, To tell you the truth, I hadn't meant to begin. What I said I made up on the spot. All I'd done was that just before we left, I ran up to the loft and snatched a glove from the box and left it on his bureau. That's the second one he found. Then what about the one he found outside the loft door? It's that that's odd. That's why he never thought it was us. I haven't had a chance to get to that part of his house. I didn't put it there.
Well, now that the affair was launched, we felt it had better go on, though I am not sure if we were quite so keen about it. It was as though, and we had known this to be possible before, it had already started itself. One sometimes feels this has happened. Anyhow, it was two days later before I thought it was my turn to lay a glove on his premises, and went up to our loft and took one out of the box. There was nothing in it but gloves. I took a white one, a little cracked, with only two buttons, and having made sure he was out, slipped through the hedge and dropped it at the foot of the stair. He startled me considerably by returning at that instant. I said I had come for a book. He saw the thing. Hello, he said. There's another. It's beginning. That makes four. Four, I said. There were only two the other night. I found one in my bedroom, a grey. Are we never going to get a pair? Then it occurred to me that he'd seen through us all along, and was getting in ahead with gloves. I took my book and returned to my sister. That won't do, she said. He's sharp, but we didn't begin it. He found his first. I said, I'm beginning to wonder if it mightn't be a good thing to find out in the village if anything is known about Miss Blacken and her brother. Yes, go, said my sister, still pensive. I went to the pub when it opened and drew blank. I heard about diseases of bees and chickens and the neighbours. The post office was no good. I was returning by a detour along a remote lane when a voice said, You were asking about Miss Blacken along at Stone Cottages. It was only a keeper who had been in the pub come up suddenly through a gate out of a dark fir planting. Seeing as you have the uses of her furniture, said he, we passed into step. I learned that after fifty years' odd residence in the place, there was nothing that you might have to tell about her, and waited. Now her brother, he was not what you might call ordinary. Again, that stopped at that. Regular old maid she was, if maid she'd ever been. Not that you could be saying regular old man for him, for he wasn't either, if you take my meaning, miss. I did. Finally, I learned, and I'm not quite sure how I learned, it was certainly not all by direct statement, that Miss Blacken had been a little grey creature who had never seemed naturally to be living or dying, whose clothes were little bits and pieces, as you might say. Anyhow, she'd drop something, and, excuse me, Miss Petticoat, his wife had said, on the green, and run away without stopping to pick it up, opening and shutting her mouth. It was then it had begun. If you could call that beginning, I was asking to know what that was. In a manner of speaking, he couldn't rightly say, it was the women took it to heart. What became of the petticoat? That was the meaning of it. "'Twasn't rightly speaking a petticoat at all. "'There weren't no wind, and when they came to pick it up, "'it upped and sailed as if there were a gale of wind behind it, "'right out of sight along the sky. "'And one day it come back, "'hung down from the top of an elm and waved at them, "'and the women had it that there were holes in it, "'like a face. "'And no wonder, seeing it had passed half a winter "'blowing about in the tops of the trees.' Did it never come down to earth? Not it, they said, nor old Miss Blacken start to look for it, except that it was then that people remembered her about at nights. A little pensive now myself, I asked about gloves, and was told, and no more than that, they say that she's left her gloves about. I returned to my sister, and we spent the evening doing a reconstruction of Miss Blacken out of Victorian oddments, 
It was most amusing, not in the least convincing. Tomorrow shall we feed him a glove, I said. It was then that it came across our minds like a full statement to that effect that it was no longer necessary. The gloves would feed themselves. I know what it is we've done, said my sister. We've wound it up. Wound up what? I answered. Ghost of a village eccentric who was careful about her hands? Oh no, said my sister. I don't know. Oh no. After another three days, I said, nothing more has happened over there. I mean, he's found no more gloves. Hadn't we better help things along a bit? There was one yesterday in my room, unbuttoned, she said. I didn't drop it. I was seriously annoyed. This seemed to be going too far. And in what direction? What does one do when this sort of thing happens? I was looking as one does when one has heard one's best friend talking about oneself, when the shadow of a heavy man fell across our floor. It was Trenchard. My sister looked up and said quickly, I've found one now. Have you? He said. So have I. He hesitated. There was something very direct and very comforting in the way he was taking it, piece by piece as it happened, not as what he would think it ought to mean. It was then that we began to be ashamed of ourselves. He went on. You know my cat? She's her kittens hidden somewhere in the loft, and I wanted to have a look at them. I went up softly, not to scare her. You know, it's dark on that top stair. I got there, and then I heard, well, a little thing falling off a step. Thought it was a kitten trying to explore. Peered, and felt, and picked up a glove. He pulled it out of his pocket, and, and held it up by a finger with slight distaste. A brown one, this time. One button, he said. The kittens aren't big enough to have been playing with it, and the cat wasn't about. There's no draught. Funny, isn't it? Reminded me of one of those Humpty Dumpty toys we had. A little silk man with arms and legs and a painted face and a loose marble inside him to make him turn over and fall about. My sister said, We found a box of loose gloves in our attic close to your bricked-up door. His answer was that it was bricked up all right, and had we thought to count them, in case either of our maids was up to some village trick. We hadn't, but I noticed that he mistrusted our maids as little as we did. Also, that his behaviour was so reasonable because he had not yet thought that there was any cause for suspicion. Let's do it now, he said. Put them all back, yours and mine. Count them and lock your door. He went back and fetched his five, and together we went upstairs. They sat on a basket trunk while I emptied the box. Twenty-seven, eleven pairs in all, and one missing. I shoveled them back into the cardboard box, yellow with time and dust. I looked up at his broad, straight nose and my sister's little one that turns up. Both were sniffing. There's a smell here, they said. And there was. Not the dust, camphor, mouse and apple smell proper to lofts. I know what it is, Trenchard said. I smelled it in Africa in a damp place. Bad skins. The loft went suddenly darker. We looked up. There was no window, but someone had cut the thatch and let in a skylight. Something was covering it, had suddenly blown across it, though outside there was no wind. I took the iron handle with holes in it to stick through the pin in the frame, and threw it up. The piece of stuff slid backwards into the thatch. I put my arm out, caught hold of it, and pulled it in. Piece of calico with a stiff, waxy surface, once used for linings, again some time ago. It seemed to have no shape, but there were holes in it. Holes, not tears. Nasty, slummy rack, 
I said. I suppose it was lying about in the thatch. Our thatch was old and full of flowers. This thing went with dustbins and tin cans. One piece was clotted together. A large spider ran out of it. I dropped it on the floor beside the box and the gloves. I was surprised to see Trenchard look at it with disgust. Never could stand seeing things go bad, he said. We left the attic, locking the door, and went downstairs. We gave him the key. It seemed the decent thing to do. Over a late and thoughtful tea, we talked of other things. We did not think it necessary to tell him what the keeper had said. The evening was exquisite, and the next day, and the next night. Days refreshed with night showers to draw out scent, and steady sun to ripen, a pattern on the world like the dry dew on a moth's wing, or the skin on a grape or a rose, and nothing more happened. The next evening Trenchard was to give a little party for his birthday, for some friends who would motor over, and my sister and I were to see that all was in order for it, flowers and fruit and wine and all the good cold things to eat. We had the delicate pleasant things to do, to slice the cucumbers and drench sprays of borage and palm in Gilead for the iced drinks. The almonds did not come, so we salted some ourselves, blanching them in the garden, getting hot in the kitchen over pans of burnt salt. At about six o'clock we went back to dress, trying as was appropriate to look like Paris, in compliment to Trenchard, but principally to the garden and to the weather and to the earth. There was a bump overhead from the attic. What's that? said my sister, painting her face. I left the skylight open, I said. It must have slipped. Let's leave it. Am I in a state of dress or undress to go up there? She was ready before I was, and said that she was going across to Trenchard's to have one more look to see if all was in order there. Half of our day's work had been to keep him out of the way. We had just sent him up to the village after more strawberries, and hoped that he would be back in time, and there was still plenty of time for him to dress. As she went, I heard his step at the front door, and a few moments later my dressing finished. I went downstairs, and out across the orchard to join them. He had gone upstairs to change, but just as I reached the veranda, I heard a short cry, which must have come from him. I ran in with my sister, who was also outside, building a last pyramid of strawberries on a dish shaped like a green leaf. He came out of the dining room. Who's done this? he said. The supper table was set with food to be fetched and eaten when people pleased. There were little bowls of cut glass set with sweets and almonds. One of these had been sprinkled with buttons. Little white buttons that had been torn off, still ragged with red-brown threads. I filled it, said my sister in a small, weak voice, with those sugar-rose leaves and a real one on top. Your servant, I began, when he cried out again. What's that glove doing up the back of your dress? It was a little silver coat I had on to begin with. I pulled it off, and there fell off the collar. But with a tiny thud, another glove, a black one. It had no buttons on it, and was open like a hand. Trenchard picked it up, and I thought I saw it collapse a little. No time to count them tonight, he said, and looked round. It was too hot for a fire, but they were laid in all the rooms. He put the glove down and struck a match. The huge chimney used to roar with its draught, but the fire would not catch. He went out to the lavatory with the glove and the dish. Go up and dress, we said, when he came back. But instead he sniffed. It's what we smelt the other day, he said. Up in the loft, 
dead skin. Outside, the air was hot and sweet and laced with coolness, but we noticed that here indoors it was cold, stale cold. Go and dress, we said again, with the female instinct to keep the minutiae of things steady and in sequence. They won't be here till eight, there's plenty of time, he said, feeling not fear or even much curiosity, but that it was not the proper thing to leave us alone with the inexplicable unpleasant. Your servant, I began again, my servant's all right, he said. Go out and wait in the veranda. I'll be down quickly. So he went up. We took a chair and sat each side of the open glass doors, where we could see into the house. We remembered that his maid, as well as ours, had gone back to her cottage to get ready for company, so there was no one in either house. He's taking it well, we said. And what is it? And what we meant was, what have we stirred up? And, for my sister and I cannot lie to one another, you did not do that with the buttons in the dish. Dear God, I did not. Dirty old woman, said my sister. Nice about her hands. I said, dirty things done in a delicate way. There was that piece of stuff. The house and the little orchard were backed with tall trees. There was a hint of evening, and high branches black against strong gold. Was there something hanging high up? very high, that looked like a square of stuff that had holes in it. Upstairs, Trenchard must have gone to the bathroom first. Then we heard him moving about in his bedroom, just above the veranda roof. Then we heard him shout again, a cry he tried to stop. We ran out across the grass and called up to his window. He answered, No, don't come up! Of course we ran up, in and through the sitting room, and up the stairs. The dining room door was still open, and with the corner of my eye I saw a candle guttering hideously in the windless room. Let us in, we said at his door. Of all the filthy nonsense, he was repeating. Look at my shirt. On the top of the chest of drawers out of which he had taken it, his shirt was lying, and on its stiff white linen was what looked like a patch of grey jelly, only it had spread out from a clot into five ribbons, like a hand or the fingers of a glove. Fine sort of beastliness, he said, that won't let you dress for dinner. I heard myself saying, are all your shirts like that? No, he said grimly, and if you don't mind waiting here till I've finished, we'll go downstairs and see what this is about. He took another shirt and finished his dressing, wincing as he touched things, while we felt as if there were slugs about, the things of which we are most afraid and that we must keep our long dresses tight about us. We went down together into the dining room, and there my sister screamed. On the top of the centre strawberry pyramid, hanging over the berries like a cluster of slugs, was a glove, yellow-orange kidskin, still and fat, a colour we had not seen in the box, the wrist and the fingers open and swollen, no buttons, "'What witch's trick is this?' he cried, and stared at us, for we were women, and like a wave moving towards us, rearing its head, came the knowledge that we were responsible for this, that our greed and vanity in devising this had evoked this, that we would now have to show courage, courage and intelligence to put an end to this, to lay this, and we had no idea how. "'The fire must burn,' I said, "'a great fire.' He turned towards the outhouse. What's the lovely scent you wear? He said to my sister. 
I want to smell it. Get that. She ran away, and I stood still, aware of my shoulder blades and the back of my neck, and all of my body that I couldn't see. Doors would not open easily. I heard him swearing and stumbling. The clang of a bucket tripped over and kicked away in the yard. My sister ran in, a scent spray in her hand, crying. It's not scent anymore. I tried it. It smells like the attic. She was squeezing the bulb and spraying us all violently. And I could not smell the dead smell of the loft, but the sweetness, like a ladylike animal of old kid gloves. Outside, the delicious evening was pouring in to meet the original smell of the house, smell of flowers and tobacco, of polished furniture and wood smoke and good things to eat. Trenchard had brought in a gallon jar of paraffin. He tipped and splashed it over the sitting room fire. Get all the gloves, he said, looking at our helpless skirts. I'll go across. I've got the loft key. We peered again into the dining room that the kitchen opened out of. The candle guttered in fat, dripping folds. A spider ran across a plate. My sister said, It's only got five fingers, like a glove. We waited. Let's have the fire ready, we said. And I staggered with the can at arm's length to the sitting room fire and drenched the piled wood. The ugly, vulgar smell was sweet with reassurance. My sister threw in a match. A roar drowned the crackle of catching sticks. Now for it, we said, and tore open the bureau drawer for the gloves. I ran up for Trenchard's shirt, and when I came back, my sister, her hands full of strawberries, threw them, yellow glove and all, on the leaping pillars of fire. I shook the guttering candle out of its stick. My sister unscrewed her spray and emptied the precious stuff that waved blue and white fingers at us out of the fierce, shrill, yellow flames. So much for that, I said. Where is he? said my sister. We looked at each other. This is our fault, we said. We must go over. If it starts here again, then we're gone. God knows what we're to do. Then she said, the loft's the place. It started there. Outside, the orchard was full of bird conversation. Inside, in half an hour, we were to give a birthday party. We ran through the gap in the hedge and into our side of the house, which had become, again, part of one house. Inside it, we expected to find one large, troubled man upstairs collecting things. Instead, there was quiet, a kind of dead quiet that came to meet us down the steep stair. The loft door was open. On the flight that led up to it, he was lying, feet down, his head upon the sill, his head invisible, wrapped up in what looked like a piece of dark green cotton, dirty and torn. We dragged it off. Burn, burn, my sister said. Some of it was in his mouth. We pulled it out. His tongue and mouth was stained. We slid him down to the foot of the flight and got water. Draw it fresh, she said, and keep it tight in your hand, for I wanted to drop the cloth, to pull it away as if it were trying to wrap itself around me, to stick to me. We threw water on him. Two shirts already. What an evening thought a bit of me. By this time, I had hold of the cloth like grim death, for it felt as though it was straining away in a wind that wasn't there. Gloves, he said. We went into the loft. The skylight was open, and the cardboard box lay open and full. She put on the lid, and put it under her arm, and we left him on the stairs and made off again, across the orchard to the fire. It was dying down, the room stifling, the wood sulky with oil black. My sister flung in the box, drenched it with the oil, 
and stiff grey smoke poured out on us. She tossed a match on it, and there was the grunt of an explosion. And as we jumped back, the fire poured up again. I felt a smart in my hand, as if the cloth was raw between my fingers. It mustn't fly up the chimney, she said. If it does, it will come back all over again. There was a box of cigars on the table. We turned them out and thrust it in between the thin cedar boards and shut it up, flung it into the firewall and held it down. The box rose once or twice, bucked under the poker and the shovel. Then we went back to Trenchard. He had come round and was sitting at the foot of the loft stair. Everything's burned, we said. Tell us what happened to you. God knows, he said. And then I was stooping to get the box and something flapped against the skylight. Blew in, I suppose, and the next thing I knew it had wrapped itself round my head and I couldn't get it off. I tore it in. I tried to get out. And I couldn't bear it any more. It was winding itself tight. And then I must have passed out. Oh, God. It was the smell of it. Today's story was With and Without Buttons by Mary Butts. It was read by Jasper Lestrange. If you enjoy the show, why not become a patron on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content? It's the surest way to help me keep creating. You can also buy me a coffee, like, subscribe, comment, share, follow on social media, and read the description for more information about the show and how you can engage with it. Until next time, sweet dreams.